Well, why? It's one of my favorite questions to ask is why? Why start this? Uh, why did this happen? Why did you say that? Why? As kids, we ask this question all the time, like, clean your room. Why? Because it's filthy. Why? Because I told you so. Why? At this moment, why is not my favorite question. <laughs> but my favorite question to come back to that question is, why are you the way that you are? <laughs> we have a healthy relationship. Uh, <laughs> but kids ask the why question all the time. They want to know, what is the point, the meaning behind all that happened. And it's this deep question, why? And, and one of my favorite questions that we ultimately get to when we ask the why question is when we talk about sin and evil is why. Why does, why does God allow evil to exist? I mean, at, at, we might say something like, well, because our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned. Well, but like any good kid, we might ask, well, yeah, but why? But why did they sin? Why did God allow them to be tempted? Why did he allow for Satan to be even in the garden at all? Why did he allow him to be tempted towards pride? Why does the evil exist at all? Whew. Today, we have a big question for us. Today, we're entering into what's called the problem of evil. Now, to, now to catch you up, if, you, if you're wondering where we're at, this is the 10th sermon in our series, and it, it, in the beginning is what we titled the series. But a quick overview, Genesis 1, creation. Genesis 2, Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, sin enters the world, Genesis 4, how sin corrupts the kids, and now things just only get worse and worse and worse, and evil is everywhere. And so what is God going to do about it? And I want to talk about this issue in three ways. The problem of evil, the problem of justice, and the problem with the problem of evil. That's right. First, the problem of evil. Now, typically when we want to talk about the problem of evil, uh, people are not wanting to engage in a philosophical argument. Um, like usually when someone wants to talk about this, if I was counseling someone, I wouldn't get, engage in a philosophical argument. I would just simply start with, I'm so sorry. Because usually the question is rooted in, in deep anguish and a loss of life or, or deep sadness. And so some of us have asked this question just simply, why? God, Why? Like when we have a miscarriage, when we're dealing with church hurt, and someone has taken advantage of you, or when someone keeps chipping away at your character and spreading lies about you, now is not the time to give that silver bullet answer with my apologetics answer. Nor is it time to just put duct tape or the Christian duct tape on the situation. Now, duct tape is great, but some of y'all think duct tape is the answer for every solution. Like your tire has a leak, put some duct tape on it. Shingles on your roof are falling off? Ah, why not? Put some duct tape on it. No Kleenexes? Uh, sure, <laughs> I'll use some duct tape. Uh, but do you know what the Christian duct tape is? It's Romans 8.28. It's the Christian duct tape that Christians quote to anybody going through anything difficult. All things work together for good. And it is a beautiful, beautiful verse. It is full of hope. But I think too many times we just want to jump to that. We want to quote that right away and think, you're suffering? Well, don't worry. Did you see Romans 8.28? God's going to work it all out. See, everything's fine. Yes, he is working. But in these moments, people just need to lament. And so sometimes we, 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 we just want to lament. But then other times we do actually want to ask the question of the problem of evil. And, and there's many ways to ask this question. But... So there's many ways to frame it. We have a slide up here that, that will say, here's the problem of evil. If God exists, then he would be all-powerful. And with all that power, God would be able to eliminate evil. 
And if God is morally perfect, then he should want to eradicate evil. But evil exists, therefore there can't be a God. This is a problem. Now, most times we don't make this formula. We just say, I can't believe in a God because of what he's let happen in this world. I've seen too much evil to believe in God. And I want to affirm this. There is too much evil in the world. And Genesis 5 and 6 don't deny that at all. Genesis 5 is a genealogy. uh, And then we're given 10 generations from Adam to Noah. In this one chapter, chapter 5, he's covering about 1,600 years. That's a pretty fast flyover of a huge portion of the history of the world. One chapter for 1,600 years. But look at, look at these guys. It's, it's the line of Adam through Seth, not Cain. Almost as if it's pitting the line of Seth against the line of Cain. And it seems like the line of Seth are the good guys. We're told Lamech in the, this chapter spoke words of hope and deliverance. While Cain's Lamech spoke of murder and vengeance. Remember him? Now it's a pretty stark contrast. Seth's Enoch is said he walks with God. Whereas Cain's Enoch says, I'm going to name a city after me. Uh, So kind of self-serving, right? (laughs) They're they're very different. And and did you notice how old these dudes get? Verse 5, Adam lives to 930 years. Woo! (laughs) That's a long time. That's a long time to be around. You think they got tired of being alive? I don't know. Methuselah, (laughs) Methuselah, though, wins the award for the oldest person in the world. In verse 27, he lives to 969 years. What's the oldest person in the Bible? Methuselah. That's your Bible trivia question. But that's crazy. There, and there's this pattern that's, that's read to this genealogy. Someone was born, they get their name, they live for so many years, and they die. Born, named, lived, died. <laughs> oh, this just warms your heart, doesn't it? <laughs> dad, can you read Genesis 5 to me again? <laughs> read it again, Dad. <laughs> Genealogies are like reading the phone book. It, it's brutal. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> It doesn't describe what they did at all. It just says, didn't say that they had a big Twitter following. This dude could juggle, uh, like nothing. <laughs> they live, they died, they kick the bucket. Like, like they all die, we all die. Aren't we just chipper today? <laughs> Everyone dies, oh good. All except a guy named Enoch. Uh, he and a guy named, a prophet named Elijah are the only two people to ever not die. They're just taken away with the Lord. But what does everyone else do? They die. Well, good. Um, So it's a sour note um, uh, on a very positive description of God's people. This death that's just ringing out, it's like an off-key note that just reminds you that something's not right in Genesis. You may not see it, but sin is this mold that's growing in the earth. And then we see it just unleashes itself in in chapter 6, and we see how wrong everything actually is. Now, though I don't really want to talk about this this topic we're about to get into. It's a hot topic, um, uh, and no one knows the answer, uh, but in the first part of chapter six. But the question is, who are the sons of God, and who are the Nephilim? Chapter six, verse one, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. There are three options to who these sons of God are. Who are they? And the commentators are completely divided on it. In fact, most just state the three options and say, you know, it's hard to know. So we're not going to come out firm on this, uh, but let me give you the three options and make my case. Option one, sons of God are actually angels. Job calls 
angels, sons of God. And so in this view, angels or fallen angels, demons, came to earth, took wives, and made babies. Kind of creepy, evil stuff. And you, you got to imagine that these, these babies were like these freaky kids who, whose eyes never blink. And they just stand over your bed while you sleep. Like, <laughs> and I really want to believe this option because of how many good movies could come out of it. <laughs> but this, this has issues because Jesus says angels aren't given in marriage. And, and, and can angels really make kids? Um, scripture doesn't seem to express that as possibility. Another view is that the sons of God are the title for kings or noble princes who saw themselves as godlike and, and took many wives into their beds. Uh, and so some would say maybe those kings were also demon-possessed to try to get the angels back into this view. Um, has some holes in it. We're not going to get into it. But, but the view that I think seems to make sense of this text and, and, and the context is that since, since Eve, we've been tracing the line of Cain and the line of Seth. The line of Seth is described as sons of God. Luther and Calvin understood that the sons of God are the daughters of men, uh, and the sons of Seth would be the daughters of Cain. See, the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain, uh, and, and the sons of, of God married them. And so and it, if this is the case, what we see is, is Cain, what we see with Cain just repeating his parents' response to sin, we now see the same thing when the sons of Seth repeat their mom's response to temptation. Look at verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were beautiful, and they took as their wives any they chose. It's kind of rough language there. Saw, beautiful, took. But isn't that what Eve did with the apple? She saw, saw that it was, it was good to the eyes, and she took it. And so Genesis is not just what happened, but it's what is always happening Genesis, as we've said before, isn't just history, it's sociology. Today, people live for themselves. They look like Eve, like Seth. They, 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 the people in the days of Noah were looking with their eyes. What's appealing to me? And we take, and we're doing that today. What's appealing? I'll take it, no matter what the ramifications are. And then those wives made uh, these children, the Bible transliterates them, Nephilim, which means fallen ones, or depraved children. Isn't that a great way to describe your children? <laughs> the Nephilim. <laughs> it says in verse 4 that the Nephilim were men of renown. Something and that means that they were giants. Uh, but I think that just means that they were kind of giant in their world. They were rock stars. They, they were your influencers, your YouTube stars, um, your, your Gwen Stefani, uh, maybe, uh, maybe Elon Musk, uh, people that, that, that you look to. All of those people are fallen, right? <laughs> but notice, regardless of whether you're from Cain's line or from Seth's line, both end up in the same place. Verse 5 says that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Ooh. Every inclination, only evil all the time. Everyone. Only evil all the time. I mean, that's a monumental statement. Underline this in your Bibles. This is just radical depravity. Every, only, all. Like, what do we do with this evil? What's God going to do? Like, his people are out of control. He's got to do something, right? Clearly, God either can't do anything about it, the whole human race is morally bankrupt, and therefore, he must be weak, and so why worship him? Or, he's choosing to do nothing about it. 
and therefore God is morally corrupt. And either way, the problem of evil is something, something that we have to deal with. Now, side by side with the problem of evil is this problem of justice. And so just set the problem of evil aside for a minute. We haven't answered it. But let's look at the problem of justice and ask yourself, have you ever heard someone say, I can't believe in a God who would send anyone to hell for eternity? I just can't. I can't believe in any religion that upholds some form of divine justice because it just sounds so barbaric. My God is a God of love. And yeah, the problem of evil is problematic, but for me, the wrathful God is even more problematic. And I mean, that, that sounds appealing. But then along comes verse 7. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. What well, just doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> wipe from the face of the earth? Okay, maybe God should do something about the problem of evil, but destroy the whole planet? Like, that's a bit much. And so we have those who don't believe in God because evil is going unchecked, and now we have those who think evil is going overchecked. And so it seems like God can't win. But what I would submit to you is if you don't believe in judgment, in judgment day, in the doctrine of divine judgment, then you have a huge problem on your hands. What do you do with human violence? This passage goes on to say that the earth had become so corrupt and was just full of violence. What do you do with evil? We have another problem of evil on our hands if we don't check it. If you say, I don't believe in a God like that, and I definitely wouldn't believe in a God who throws some, some so-called bad people into some burning lake, that's just wrong if there is no God and no divine justice and you're truly sinned against and someone harms you or harms someone you love, like what do we do with that? If we just live in a, in a world where it's just dog eat dog and it's just the strong survive, like what right do we have to be angry about violence? Like isn't violence just a part of the evolutionary process? If those in power kill the powerless, like, who are we to complain? It's just nature, moving and growing, right? If you don't believe in the Imago Dei, and we don't have a, a God who created us, then we have no right to fight for things like human rights. Because there's no such thing as human rights. There's no right. There's no wrong. It's just business. It's just what you can get away with. You see, the person who says that they don't believe God could judge has a, has a bigger problem on their hands than having no judge at all. Let, let's make this real. Uh, as heinous as the physical violence is, um, let's think of something that may have happened to you this week. What, what about when someone does violence to your character? What if they cut you as a human being, and they misinterpret everything you say. They talk around your back, and your character gets assassinated. You get cut with slander, 
or you're stabbed with backbiting and, and painted in the most uncharitable way. Maybe they go and say all this publicly on Twitter or Facebook. Maybe they create their own online group or forum to say all about what's wrong with you and they invite all their friends to it. Now what do you do? You're going to become bitter and angry. That's normal. It's innate. And that anger will spread through you like a poison. And it will darken your outlook. And when you're completely poisoned with anger, that's when someone will come along and say, hey, just forgive. Anger and bitterness is killing you, so just forgive. Oh, is that it? Well, thank you. I didn't know that was the cure. Have you ever had someone say, just forgive and forget? It's a lot harder than it looks, isn't it? If someone says, just forgive, I would say they haven't had a great evil done to them. Not really. If they had, they would know forgiveness seems like this impossible, insurmountable, unbearable thing to do. Now, if you're waiting for the Jesus juke right here, you know, well, Jesus forgave me, so you should forgive. I mean, it's true, but like, not yet. <laughs> the blood of Abel is still crying out. The only way you can forgive and not let violence and bitterness poison you is by believing there is a judge and I'm not it. What they've done and are still doing is wrong. And the only way to not let bitterness and anger well up in me is to believe that there is someone who will give them what they deserve. Now, I don't know what they deserve. I don't know how much they need to pay for their sin, but there is someone who does. This, this is why cultures who have experienced heinous acts of violence against them don't have a problem with divine justice. They're, they are begging for justice. In fact, it's precisely God's justice that frees them. They're begging for justice and they, they need it. It's good news to them. There's a, a Croatian theologian, um, a man named Miroslav Volf. Uh, he teaches at Yale um, and he puts forth this thesis that violence flourishes today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. He says, my thesis in the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will not be popular in the States. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you're delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where that paper was actually written. And among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered and then burned and then leveled to the ground, and whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit, and soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. Okay, it's a big quote. What he's saying is this, is that if you think believing in a God of vengeance leads to more war, leads to more strife, you're living a comfortable little life. If your house was burned down, family raped, maybe killed, like you will pick up the sword. You will begin an endless cycle of vengeance with death and no defendants, right? Unless you believe deep, deep down that God will do it. 
Unless you believe that Romans 12, 19, that vengeance is the Lord's. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And I have to believe that God will make it right. It's the opposite of what we think. Like belief in divine justice actually gives us peace here and now. It's his. Like I don't have to stew. God will make it right. And and this leads me now to the the problem with the problem of evil. And I think the answer to the problem of evil is actually very simple. Time. Time. Now, you may be thinking, why is time the answer to my problem of evil? We see evil and we want justice. We need it. And when we don't see it right away, then we lose hope. And so it's not a matter of, is there an answer for evil? It's when will we see it? If you saw evil punished right away, then you think, okay, there's right, there's wrong, and and doing wrong, like robbing banks, gets you put in jail. Uh, If you're a kid and you see another student in your class uh, get a zero for cheating on a test, then you're like, okay, there's justice, serves them right. But what if the bank robbers get away? What if that kid gets 100 and he's recognized as one of the smartest students in his grade? What if crime does pay? What if you need to become cold and mean-spirited to make it in this culture? Like, what if murderers get away with it? Don't you see our problem is is actually time. That's the real problem. Does it matter if someone is punished now or later? Don't they get punished regardless? I mean, that's tough, right? How would it change you if you knew that God would ultimately right the wrong and punish the evildoers? Like, there will be justice. But still, there's that burning question of why. There's that question again. Why do the evil get to prosper here at all in this world? Like, doesn't God know? Doesn't he care what's happening right here in this world? Is he asleep at the wheel? Like, and, and that's the second problem with the problem of evil I have. We assume we see better than God. We assume we see the brokenness of this world more clearly than God does. Like when God can see every thought and intention of the heart, as the text says, was only evil all the time. Oh, if we could see what God sees, it would kill us. I mean, it would. Just imagine how hard it is to hear bad news. I mean, sometimes when you hear news that's so sad, it's so heart-wrenching, like it makes you fall down right on the spot. It cripples you. Now imagine you're God and you're hearing that news all the time. What does it do to him? Verse 6 says that the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled or grieved or another translation, it was filled with pain. Like, are you upset with the evil in the world? God's heart was filled with pain over it. God is pained by our wandering. Not just sadness, but it's just shattered pain. Like God is in tears over the violence of the world. We don't think he sees it. He sees all of it. But then why not do something? And that's the question we keep coming back to. Why, why, why? And just because we don't have a reason for the evil that's enduring doesn't mean there isn't one. 
You may have heard someone say, well, what good reason could God have for allowing this? But just because we, you can't think of it doesn't mean there isn't one. Now, I'm not going to give you a pat answer. Again, usually a very evil and painful thing has happened to you, and we just want to lament it. And I can't assume to know why God allowed it. But one thing we do know is that it can't be because he doesn't care about you. Because verse 6 tells us he's in pain over it too. We assume that because God doesn't do something right away, it means he doesn't care. But what if God's delay in wrath was just another grace? His delay in wrath was just another grace that he's given to us. I mean, think about it. God says, I'm not going to destroy the earth for another 120 years. He doesn't say that mankind's going to live 120 years. He's saying, you have 120 years to repent. That seems like a long enough time. But in 120 years, I will flood the earth. And so his delay is to give time for us to repent. The same thing happened in the garden. Like if if we want instantaneous judgment from God all the time, if we want it right now, then in Genesis 3, 7, like we should have wanted God to just stop history right then. When Adam and Eve sinned, like why didn't God just destroy the earth then? Mankind sinned. Clearly sin is destructive. Why not send the flood then? Because God decided to weep to stay vulnerable, to suffer. It's out of immense love for you and for me that as much as he hates evil, he's tolerating it for you. God tied his heart to us. Like, don't we see that there is a, there is a pain to grace that we just don't know? And this is the real problem of evil. As C.S. Lewis says, the, the real problem of evil is not why some pious, humble, believing people suffer, but why some do not. If every act of evil pulls tears from God's eyes, why does he allow us to continue? Well, why did he save Noah? Now, that's a million-dollar question. And and why did God save Noah? Ask a group of pastors, and you'll get a debate. Was it because Noah was a righteous man? Because he was a part of the good line? No. (laughs) Remember, Genesis 6-5 describes the state of the world, everyone, evil, all the time. (laughs) Who is that? It's everyone. And so Noah was a regular dude. He was a part of the evil ones. He's a sinner. He's in the group of evil that day. But in verse 8, it says, Noah found favor. That's another word for grace. Noah didn't earn favor or win God over. He found it. He found grace. And grace is, is getting what you don't deserve. We deserve the flood. We deserve divine justice. And so the problem of evil is truly a different problem altogether. It's a wonder that God gives grace to anybody. But that answer is found in Christ Jesus. God is the way maker. He's the miracle worker. God makes a way when there is no way. He's the answer to the problem of evil. And and how God can offer anyone grace is found in the cross, where we see justice, God punishing sinners, and grace given to free sinners from prison at the same time. Like the triune God unleashes the floodgates of his wrath at the cross when he allows evil sinners to nail him to the cross. And when we look to that image, that cross, we can say, I don't know why he's allowed this evil thing to happen to me, 
But it can't be because he doesn't love me. Because look how much pain he's enduring for me. Like, that's the pain of grace. Anytime we offer grace, someone has to pay the penalty. Someone has to swallow the vengeance. And Christ says, I will swap your sin for my good record. Jesus is willing to let pain and evil endure just a little bit longer. Why? So he can reach you. So he can reach your neighbor. But one day, someday, soon and very soon, he will no longer endure it. And just as it was in the day of Noah, when sinning went unchecked and people saw what looked good and they took, sometimes it feels like God is doing nothing to the wicked. But one day, someday, soon and very soon, he will say, that's enough. I'll give them, and I've given them enough time to repent, and I will come and I will bring my sword with me. And there will be true justice. And so now, as you go this week, how can we make this theology portable? How can we make it practical? How can you bring it with you to your work or to your daily life? First, ask yourself, does the problem of evil shock me? Like, do I grieve over the sin the way that he does? Do I weep? I mean, why does, why does it give me grace at all? Genesis 6 is here to help us grieve over sin. Secondly, do I believe that vengeance is the Lord's? Or am I secretly nourishing the belief that God won't do anything about my suffering? And if he won't do something, I will. And so to you, I want you to say, rest in the knowledge that he suffers right there with you. And that the battle against whatever evil is afflicting you is bigger than you. But it's not bigger than the Lord. He's right there with you. And lastly, say endure this tough time, whatever you're going through, with hope. Look at the great anguish all throughout history and see that God endures the evil for you. And if I can begin to see that, then I can, then I can endure whatever the world throws at me because there is a God who does have all power and let that providence fuel you for the journey this week because he is fully in charge. You don't have to worry. You don't have to stress. In fact, you can truly have joy and peace and assurance of his love. And because he's fully in charge, you can even know that God's at work even when it doesn't look like it. Even when it seems like he's not there, you can work and you can get alongside him and fight those evils in this world. And so I would say endure and hope in him this week. So let's pray.